preaching text this morning is from the second book of Samuel, chapters 11 and part of 12. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Later in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote this, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling the king all the news about the fighting, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead too. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but but a little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. 
He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah is, in my opinion, one of the more uncomfortable stories in the Bible. It shows David, the ideal king, the so-called man after God's own heart, committing evil against his subjects, exploiting his power for his own gain in much the same way that Ahab and Jezebel would a century and a half later. First, David uses his power, his unquestionable authority as king to take Bathsheba to fulfill his own lust. And then when this results in pregnancy, the ensuing cover-up results in the death of several of David's top soldiers, as well as Bathsheba's marriage to the man who used his power to exploit her. Really, it's rather remarkable that this story has been preserved at all. I know of no other stories from this period in history or even for centuries afterward where a beloved king is shown to have fallen so thoroughly and so completely. It was, and it still is, dangerous business to write about the shortcomings of kings and rulers. And so it is rare to see such a story recorded so prominently. In fact, even in the Old Testament, you can see how remarkable this is because the book of First Chronicles, which also tells the story of David, makes no mention of this particular episode in his life. In fact, interpreters of this story from the time before Jesus all the way to the present have found the story so remarkable, so uncomfortable, that they have tended to insert details that are not there in the text in order to make David's fall just a little bit more palatable. Many, for example, have tried to paint David as the victim here, the victim of Bathsheba's willful seduction, or at least to portray Bathsheba as the initiator. One uh, 20th century, so not that long ago, commentator I read, even calls this episode the story of Bathsheba's seduction and conquest of David. Others have tried to rationalize David's behavior, to say, well, this sin isn't so bad. Maybe Uriah was abusive. Maybe Bathsheba was unhappy, or perhaps the whole affair was just a series of unfortunate mistakes. Still others have tried to turn this into a romance, as though the love between David and Bathsheba was so legendary that they just had to transgress society's rules in order to be with each other, like Romeo and Juliet or, or Antony and Cleopatra. I mean, in fact, even our English translation that we used this morning softens the offense a bit in verse 4 near the beginning. Where our Bibles read, David sent messengers to get her. The Hebrew reads this, David sent messengers and he took her. 
That word took can be translated grasped or seized. No, this is not the result of a seduction attempt, nor is it the plot of star-crossed lovers, nor is David rescuing Bathsheba from an unhappy marriage. This is the story of a powerful man, a king with absolute power, exercising his royal privilege to use for his own pleasure a woman who he finds desirable. And then when his repeated attempts to cover this up fail, the king orders a murder, which results in the deaths of several of his best soldiers. It is, in fact, a horrific story. Part of what makes this story feel so horrific is the fact that it is so very familiar. I mean, for the past year or two, we have been inundated with stories like this. Stories of powerful men, kings of their own little kingdoms, using their power to dominate, to exploit the objects of their desire. From Bill Cosby to Harvey Weinstein to the continuing revelation spilling from the Roman Catholic Church, we are finally beginning to notice as a public just how depressingly common these stories of rape and abuse are. And many of us men are finally beginning to realize just how cautious and wary women have to be in our world. Even more depressing than the constant assault of news stories is the knowledge that the stories that we hear about barely scratch the surface of the millions of stories which never see the light of day, of the parents who use their children to vent their anger, of the spouses, usually husbands, who think marriage gives them absolute control over the other, of the human traffickers profiting from slavery, of the employers who use their power to take liberties with their employees, and of rulers and politicians, and not just in foreign nations, who use their positions for personal profit and gain, some of whom will literally commit murder when someone threatens their power. Every single day, this sort of injustice is committed, the powerful using their power for evil, and the vast majority of the time, they just get away with it. I mean, isn't that what happened to David? I mean, David's actions aren't exactly hidden. His servants, his messengers, he sent to Bathsheba, the general of his army. All of these know at least some part of the story that's taken place. And yet at the end of chapter 11, David has taken Bathsheba into his house. She has become his wife and she has borne him a son. It seems that there are no repercussions for his actions. And indeed, why should there be? David is, after all, the king. He's God's chosen. And in this time before any conception of human rights, there's no real reason to think that David has done anything out of the ordinary for kings to do. Pharaoh, to give an example, the king of Egypt, he could order the murder of all of the Hebrew babies without batting an eye, and it was understood to be within his authority to do so. Rulers in that day, sometimes still today, were largely absolute in their authority. And it seems unlikely that anything beyond a loss of respect, perhaps, would result, even if David's action were publicly known. Except for that one line near the end. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Actually, in Hebrew, it's a little bit stronger. The thing that David had done was evil in the eyes 
of the Lord. By the standards of the world, David's actions as king were perhaps bad behavior, maybe inadvisable, maybe even foolish, but there was no expectation that any real punishment would result. This is, after all, simply the kind of thing kings do. But by God's standards, not even David, God's chosen king, was beyond the demand of the covenant. Not even the king could safely ignore the commandments, do not covet, do not commit adultery, do not murder. While everybody else regards a situation from the perspective of royal power, God sees the actions of David from below, from the standpoint of Uriah and Bathsheba. While everyone assumes the powerful get away scot-free, God is not mocked. And God assures that this injustice is addressed. This, of course, is true today. That though the powerful seem to be immune to their wrongdoing, God is not mocked. Though they can hide their abuses for a time, though they can even defer punishment when their deeds come to light, the justice of God will not be turned aside. And the word of God stands against their actions. As Jesus himself says, there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed nor is anything secret except to come to light. But of course, it's not just them out there, is it? It's also us. For many of us, nearly all of us, in fact, have some power over others, and there are opportunities to exploit that power. And while I pray that none of us are exploiting our power to the extent that David was exploiting his, the fact is that sin is still sin, even when we strive to make it appear small. And so if your actions in your places of power are reflected in the actions of David here or in the actions of the rich man in Nathan's parable, I must declare to you that God will not be mocked. And though you may be able to hide them for the time being, there is nothing hidden that will not be brought to light. And on the other hand, if you are the powerless one, if you are the one being exploited and have nowhere to turn, I am here to tell you that God does indeed see your pain, that God does hear your cry, and that God will not fail to answer, and that God has placed safe people in your life to whom you can go for help. And finally, there's one more word that I must give. That while God is a God of justice, God is also gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Be turned from your sin and seek mercy. Confess your sin and he is faithful and just to forgive For our God is a God of justice, and even more, God is a God of mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.